following message is from the 2015 IBCD Summer Institute, equipped to counsel. Good morning. It is an honor um, to be here with you today. And um, let, me, let me start off by explaining why this is such a huge honor for me. Um, I am, I'm not a guy who has training, really, in biblical counseling. I, I sort of backed into biblical counseling. Uh, in my seminary training, um, I was of the opinion that I was not an effective counselor and that I could not be an effective counselor. Um, I, I was in school, I, I was born and raised in, in Los Angeles. I grew up in South Central LA, raised by a single teenage Buddhist mother. And when I was old enough to find a little trouble in LA, and there was a little bit to be found at that time, um, we, we moved. And so my mother, you know, packed me up and all her stuff and we shipped out. We left Los Angeles, we got on a bus three and a half days. And we went to Beaufort, South Carolina to live with her oldest brother, who was a retired drill instructor in the Marine Corps. <laughs> and so I got out of trouble. I got out of trouble, like, in a hurry. And it, it was an amazing experience to be right there near Paris Island. He would take me over to Paris Island, and all I ever wanted to be was a Marine. He, I was living with G.I. Joe. It was just, it was fantastic. Um, and so... Just an amazing experience for me, a boy from South Central. I go here, and in the Marine Corps, he he was a drill instructor, but he also trained canines for a while. So he got me a dog and taught me how to train the dog. Um, you know, he took me hunting and fishing, and he he was a scuba diver. And so in Buford, y'all seen the, uh, the Forrest Gump, you know, and Bubba Gump, and all the shrimp, and this and that. You know, with these shrimp boats in Buford, it's huge. Well, he would get his, they would get their nets caught. You know, in their motors, and and he would go down in his scuba deer gear and and free their motors and their nets, whatever, and they would pay him in bushels of shrimp. I didn't know what a bushel of shrimp was, but when I'm watching Forrest Gump and he's talking about all those different kind of shrimp dishes, I lost it because I was like, yeah, I know. All, we had shrimp so many. Years. I didn't think I could get tired of shrimp. I I I could. I could. <laughs> And there are all of these wonderful things that I learned uh, from my uncle, but my uncle, not a believer either. So it wasn't until my first year at university um, that I heard the gospel and came to faith in Christ. And I started preaching about a year and a half after that. And um, so I transferred, I was at Rice University in, in Houston, Texas. And um, so now I was, I, was, I was in the Republic of Texas that I have resided in ever since and never wanted to leave. Um, but when I started preaching um, as a, a college football player of, of, of some renown at that time, people started inviting me in to do things. And I realized I didn't, I just didn't, I didn't know much of anything at all. I was a relatively new believer. So I transferred my senior year. Who does that, right? So I'm majoring in international business and pre-law at Rice, and I, I transferred to Houston Baptist University. They don't have international business and pre-law at Houston Baptist University. They also don't have a football team. So I'm not playing football anymore. I no longer have a scholarship. Uh, did I mention I got married the summer between my sophomore and junior year, so now I have a wife. We had a baby 10 months later. So I have a wife, I have a daughter, and I gotta pay for school. So, yeah, last, last, so I'm at HBU for 14 months. In 14 months, I accumulate 47 credit hours, working two jobs, and doing ministry on the side, having a wife and a new baby. Highest GPA of my entire college career, by the way. Um, people ask me where I grew up. I grew up some in Los Angeles, but mostly when I got married, right? Um, <laughs> And so we got that done, and uh, I won a scholarship. It was a, it was a Riverside scholarship. Riverside Baptist Church had, had disbanded, and they brought all their resources together and created an endowed scholarship uh, for what they called the most outstanding theology student at Houston Baptist University so that they would pay for your seminary in full at any Southern Baptist seminary. Um, I was not the most outstanding theology student at Houston Baptist University, but I had a wife 
and a daughter and had gone from having a full scholarship to paying for school any way I could, two jobs, and they were like, yeah, we're giving this money to that guy. And so I got the Riverside Scholarship, went to Southwestern Seminary. I'm training in seminary, and at this time, I'm in seminary from, you know, 93 to 96. And, and there's a counseling program at Southwestern at the time. It's the largest seminary in the world at the time. And there's a counseling program there, and it was one of the, you know, integrated counseling programs. It's all you could get. And there was this understanding that people who were preparing for the pastorate were preparing to deal with Christians who dealt with regular stuff. But people who were in the counseling program, those were, that's Marine Force Recon, that's Green Berets, that's Delta Forces. Those are the people who deal with people who have the real problems. They were above the church. They were outside the church. They were not under the authority of the church. They were being rooted and grounded in the quasi-science of psychology. Interestingly enough, when I transferred, I I, I studied, I, I got a degree in Christianity. I also got a degree in sociology. So I'm in the behavioral science world, understand a little bit about this. And basically, you look at this program, and what was happening is these guys were basically preparing the same way counselors and therapists prepared to have the same ministry business model that counselors and therapists have, completely independent of the church, outside of the church's authority, right? To deal with people who had real problems. And pastors were being prepared to to have this mindset. You deal with people and you do preaching, but if real stuff comes up, you send them outside of the church to something that is better equipped than the church, to someone who's not under the authority of the church so that they can get real help. That was my mindset. And, and, and here is what I would do. I, talk, I worked with people all the time who would tell me things like, you've helped me. You can't, I can't tell you how much you've helped me. I've been going to therapy. I've been doing this. I've been doing that. And you helped me. And what would I do? Well, they would tell me, here's my situation. And I would go, huh, that sounds familiar. You know, the Bible kind of talks about that. <laughs> And we would open up the word and talk about what the Bible says about this issue. And oftentimes it was rooted in sin issues and there needed to be repentance and there needed to be a change in the way that they fought and a change in the way that they, you know, lived out and obeyed these things that they found in the word. And so we would walk through that sort of stuff. And and so, but I was embarrassed by that. I was embarrassed by that because that's not what counseling is supposed to look like. It's supposed to be therapy. And it's, it's supposed to take way longer than the stuff was taken with me, right? It's supposed to be therapy, supposed to last a long time. You're supposed to be non-judgmental, non-directive. You're not supposed to have somebody walk in and go, it hurts when I do this. And you just look at them and go, stop doing that, right? That's, that was... So my understanding was I was absolutely not equipped or not competent to counsel. Then I read Jay Adams' book competent to counsel. I cried. I cried all the way through that book. Not because I found absolutely agreement, absolute agreement on every page, but because philosophically somebody was saying what I had come to believe but had been taught was wrong. Philosophically somebody was saying it's ridiculous for Christians to say, if you have a real problem, you need the quasi-science of psychology or the drugs of psychiatry in order to deal with you. Yes, there are real organic problems. And we need to have partnerships with people who can help us deal with folks who have real organic problems. And a pastor who's serious about biblical counseling, one of the most important phone numbers for him to have, you know, in his arsenal is the phone number to a good, solid, biblically thinking general practitioner, a physician who can give people physicals. Amen. Because it's amazing how messed up you can be, for example, if you're not sleeping. You realize how much stuff can just swirl completely out of control in your life if you're not sleeping? Amen. (laughs) There's stuff that happens to people. 
And so here I was, and I'm reading this, and I'm, I'm, I'm literally, I literally wept as I read through that book. Because all of a sudden, I realized a couple of things. One, that this model that I had seen, I, and I did have a problem with it. I did have a problem that we were divorcing counseling from the church and divorcing it from the word. I did have a problem with the fact that you had this counseling that was happening in a place and in a way that the biblical counselor was not under the authority of any church. By the way, that's still a problem for some of us. If you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. (laughs) That's still a problem for some of us. I had a problem with it and the fact that we were divorcing it from the word of God. That basically what what counseling was, was we're going to do the same thing that a secular psychologist would do, but we're going to pray before and after. That's an oversimplification, but only slightly. Because this is what was happening. So, my, my, my job in this session is to talk about the importance of the word in counseling. And I want to do that, but I want to give you that background and that backdrop as we talk about this issue. Turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. And we're going to cover about four sermons worth of stuff um, in the time that I have remaining here in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. There's a theme in the book of 2 Timothy. There's this two-pronged theme. Uh, The the first prong of this theme is to preserve and proclaim the gospel. Okay? We see that in every chapter. Preserve and proclaim the gospel. In the first chapter, um, he's telling them to you know, guard this deposit. Um, he's talking about this pattern of sound words. Uh, in the second chapter, things that you have heard from me and trust the faithful men who will be able to you know, uh, teach others also. Um, in the third chapter, we're going to look at, you know, as for you, continue in what you have heard, so on and so forth. In the fourth chapter, preach the word. This is incredibly important to Paul. It's important to him because in chapter 4, look in chapter 4. In verse 6, Paul knows that he is about to be martyred. He knows that he's not long for this world. He's in prison in Rome again, um, and this is going to be the last time. He says, for I'm already being poured out like as a drink offering, um, and the time of my departure has come. So he knows this. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me. The crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul knows that he's about to die. He also knows that he's about to die for proclaiming the gospel. And he's telling young Timothy to proclaim the gospel. They're going to kill me for proclaiming the gospel. When they do, I want you to proclaim the gospel. This is essentially what he's saying in this letter. So that's the first prong. Why is this so important? This is so important for a number of reasons. But not least of which is Paul knows he's going to die not only because of his own experience with the Roman government but because of the experience of the other apostles the apostles are dying off they're being martyred they're being beheaded they're being boiled in oil one run through with a spear uh, one beaten to death with a branch of an olive tree um, this is what one you crucified upside down these are the things that are happening to the apostles And interestingly enough, you know, we often hear people who say, we just need to get back to the first century church. You you, you ever hear this? We just need to get back there. We just need to get back to the first century church. Really? Which one? Corinth? Huh? They were messed up. There's a first century church for you. It's It's pure myth. Pure myth that the church was okay in the first century and that now we have troubles. Anybody who believes that either hasn't read the epistles or has forgotten what they read. Amen. Amen. Have you read Peter's epistles? Talking about these dogs who come in. Have you read, have you seen this? Have you read Jude? Have you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? 
There were huge problems in the first century church. And this is while the apostles were still alive. So as the apostles are dying off and the New Testament is not compiled, the apostles are they're thinking this. We're only one generation away from this thing being extinct. It was so important, number one, for them to write. This is why, by the way, he says in the next paragraph in chapter 4, he says for him to come quickly, and he also says, bring me the parchments. Bring me the books, bring me the parchments. Because there's nothing more important at this time than writing, number one. And number two, passing on what he knows to the next generation so that the gospel can be preserved. So this is very important to him. The second side of this, along with this, the second prong in the theme is endure the suffering that will follow inevitably as a result of doing the first. Number one, preserve and proclaim the gospel. Number two, endure the suffering that will follow inevitably as a result of doing the first thing. So in every chapter, you have something related to and akin to preserve and proclaim the gospel. And in every chapter, you have suffering. Chapter one, verse eight, don't be ashamed of the testimony about Jesus or of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Right? In chapter 2, right after he says in verse 2 that he's to pass these things on to faithful men, verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier in Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, we're going to look at, but look in chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering. In every chapter, there's a reference to this suffering, okay? So let's put these things together and look here in chapter 3 and talk about this, this, the importance of the word as it relates to our, our counseling of people. Verse 1, but understand this. That in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. By the way, the last days in the New Testament, uh, the last days is the time between Christ's first and second coming. I always find it funny when people ask me, do you think we're in the last days? No. That's always my answer. You think we're in the last days? No. Really, you don't? No, I don't think we're in the last days. I know we're in the last days. Really, how do you know? What signs do you see? Um, the fact that the New Testament refers to the last days as the time between Christ's first and second coming. That means since the resurrection, we've been in the last days. And the only time we'll not be in the last days is after we've experienced the day of the Lord. That's the last day. Then we won't be in the last days anymore. We'll be in the last day. (laughs) Then we'll be in the age to come. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Okay. So in other words, when he talks about these times of difficulty that will come, you don't have to wonder if he's talking about us in the here and the now. He absolutely is. Okay. Now, that's the theological evidence that he's talking about our day. But I can give you practical evidence because look at the description. Four, people will be lovers of self. Lord have mercy. Narcissism, self-love, selfism. That's the number one religion in our culture by far. Amen? Lovers of self. And it's ironic that we talk about low self-esteem. Because we do, we do not have a self-esteem problem in our culture. We absolutely don't. And even those things that we do say, we say everything is low self-esteem, right? So you have the person, you, you have the person and, and there's the young person, and the young person is, is um, underperforming academically. Well, it's because they have low self-esteem. They're promiscuous sexually. Well, that's because they have low self-esteem. They're cutters. That's because they have low self-esteem. They act out violently. It's because they have low self-esteem. I mean, not everything. Everything. Everything is beyond everything, okay? (laughs) 
everything is blamed on low self-esteem. In other words, everything would be better if you just thought more highly of yourself. Which is proof positive that we live in the age of being lovers of self. Because if anything is wrong in your life, it is tied to the fact that you don't love yourself enough. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Listen, we're, we're living out of suitcases right now. Our, our things left for Zambia um, last week. It's an 8 to 12 week journey, right? So it, our things are on a ship right now. We don't leave until August. So we're nomads until August. We're living out of suitcases, which means that we're spending a lot of time going places and eating. My family's here. They'll be here with me tonight. And we spend a lot of time going places and eating. So we're at a restaurant. We, 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 uh, we had had some stuff to do to get ready to prepare. And um, there are some shots that we have to have. Um, and so we had to take kids who hadn't been getting shots to get some shots. We had to get some shots. One of those days. It was just one of those days. And, and we had to go and eat. And we went out to eat. And it was just one of the... We had kids that were just in such bad form. For, from our perspective. Just sort of whiny. Just upset. Just, you know, that hurt. Why'd you let them do that to me? You know, we're sitting at the restaurant. I can't tell you how many people came over to us and just talked about how unbelievably well-behaved our children were. <laughs> no, no, I'm serious. Y'all just don't understand. I, this is, I, y'all came over here. We were worried. You came over here with these seven kids, 10 and under. We thought they're going to ruin our day. They behave better than that, you know, group of grown men over there. You know, and, and it, for us, you know, we're looking at all these issues and whatever, and our children hear that. And what we tell them is, listen, guys, Praise the Lord when people come and say that to you. But don't let your heads get big. All those people just told you was how terrible other kids act. <laughs> They're grading on a curve. But that whole idea of disobedience to parents, the idea that children would be in any way respectful to their parents, is a foreign concept in our culture. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then look, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and lead astray, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. There's the picture of this culture and atmosphere of the last days. And by the way, if you're engaged in any kind of biblical counseling, I basically gave you a list of almost everything that you're dealing with in people's lives. True, false, right, or wrong. Uh, that's it right there. This is what we're dealing with. 
When you talk about biblical counseling, right, it's not an exhaustive list, but there are very few things that any of us would add to this list as it relates to what we're dealing with. There, There may be different specifics, different specific expressions of these things, but basically when you boil them down and when you get to the root, this is the stuff that we're dealing with. This is what we're counseling and discipling people through right here. Now, there is a contrast that's about to happen. Verse 10, you, however. So we talked about those folks, right? There, there are those folks. And this is this, this is this false godliness out there. Remember, these are not people who are openly, you know, acknowledging that they have no godliness. These are people who are saying that they have godliness, right? There's you, however. There's a contrast here. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my... Now, the list is getting ready to change, but notice that this is the opposite of the stuff that you just looked at, right? And he's putting Timothy in this other category. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But he doesn't stop there. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. By the way, there's a question I want you to stop asking because it's been answered. People ask the question all the time. I just don't understand why God allows all of these apostate churches to rise up and even flourish. I just don't understand why all these false teachers have these huge ministries and these huge followings. I just don't get it. Well, then you don't believe the Bible. If you don't understand why that's happening, you don't believe the Bible. It's happening. God said it was going to happen. We should never sit around and wonder why evil men and imposters are going on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived, when there's a verse in the Bible that says that's going to happen. Amen, somebody. But as for you, another contrast. But as for you. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. There's the difference. What's the difference between us and them? What's the difference between those people who are living those godless lives and having a form of godliness, and you who have true godliness and true righteousness? The difference is the sacred writings. So if we're counseling people who are on the other side of the ledger, trying to deal with those particular issues, how do we get them on the right side of the ledger? The sacred writings. The sacred writings. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Because that's what matters. Not even so much that you cope with those other issues that we read about, but that you're made wise for salvation. You need to be saved, and you need godly wisdom. This is what biblical counseling is all about. This is, it's about getting people saved, because a lot of times people are dealing with these problems, they're not saved. Amen? And then they need to exercise godly wisdom. They're being unwise. And then the statement, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This phrase here, the man of God, is a reference to Timothy. It's a reference to the pastor. It's a reference to the, to the minister of the gospel. That the minister of the gospel may be thoroughly furnished for every good work. Because of that as well, the word of God must be central for the minister of God who is ministering in terms of biblical counseling. 
It's the word of God that makes you thoroughly furnished to do that work of counseling. Now, look at the next paragraph. I charge you. There's almost an assumed therefore. Because of all this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For, stop there. Paul writes this and he calls Timothy his beloved child. Refers to him in chapter 2 again as my child. Now he gets all official. This is like an official pronouncement. You know? I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is the judge, the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom this, this is a, I'm laying a charge on you I'm not speaking to you as my beloved child I'm speaking to you as an apostle and I'm speaking to you out of my apostolic authority you don't get to squirm away from this one I'm not telling you what I would like for you to do as my friend I'm not telling you what I would like for you to do because you love me I'm telling you what you must do because of Christ the king who is coming this is huge this is not a suggestion preach the word you kairos a kairos two types of time in in the bible there's chronos and kairos chronos chronological time what time is it right kairos is opportunity time seasons Right, Eukairos, good season. Akairos, bad season. Uh, What does he mean by that? Good season, bad season. Um, Here's what he means by that. Uh, There are there are times and there are seasons when it's popular to preach the word, preach it right, and preach it hard. There are seasons like that historically. Um, think about the Great Awakening. Thousands, tens of thousands of people gathering in fields for hours to listen to Whitfield and his ilk. I mean, th- think about that, right? It, it was huge. It was huge. Less so in the Second Great Awakening. There, there was a lot more opposition to Edwards and, and, and the like in the Second Great Awakening than there was in the First Great Awakening. But, but in the time of Great Awakening, when you had these preachers who are preaching sound biblical doctrine and people are flocking by thousands and even tens of thousands to listen to them, e- even if you were insincere, you figured out how to preach like those guys. Right? To preach the word, to preach it right, and to preach it hard. Because that's what people wanted. That was you, Kairos. But it's not always like that. There are other times when preaching the word, preaching it right, and preaching it hard, not popular. People are not flocking to that kind of preaching. That's a Kairos. That's out of season. He says, you preach the word regardless of which of those seasons you find yourself in. But why? Why is it important for this charge? Here's where we get to the nitty-gritty. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and will wander off into myths. There's why. And that's where we are today. Here's why the Word of God is so important in biblical counseling today. And here's why a commitment to the Word of God in biblical counseling is so important today. Because we're in a kairos. We're out of season as it relates to the Bible being brought to bear, both in preaching and in biblical counseling. Let me give you a few examples. People wandering off into myths. Um, one, I don't, I don't know how many of you are aware that today uh, the, the Supreme Court decision came down 5-4 to four in favor of same-sex marriage. Okay. Um, you know, along lines that were expected, Kennedy, of course, was the swing vote, um, and, and Kennedy went the way of, of uh, supporting uh, same-sex marriage. But regardless of that, 
for a long time now, um, the, the fact has been that a large number of younger Christians are not just wrong on same-sex marriage, but belligerent about it. Belligerently so. Those of you who have children, especially if they're in the government education system, you've probably had arguments with them over this issue because they've capitulated. They have been bombarded over and over and over again on this issue and believe that the problem, it's ironic, here, here, is a, here is a sin, which is one of the few sins to which the Bible refers as an abomination. It's the only sin for which fire and brimstone rain down from heaven. Amen. It's unique. It's unique. And yet, people's attitude toward this sin is such that They aren't disgusted by it. They aren't enraged by it, but they're disgusted and enraged by Christians who speak what the Bible says about it. The abomination they can abide. Speaking against the abomination, they see as unchristian. This is turning aside to myths. Why is this significant as it relates to counseling? Here's why. People who are dealing with same-sex attractions have a problem. And they need to be helped. But because the culture has completely flipped on this issue, ultimately what we're saying to people is, you don't really have a problem at all. And the people who need to be helped are the people who think you need help. just read a story a couple of days ago about a physician in Boston who was dismissed from his post. He's a urologist, a specialist, been serving at this hospital, I think, 30 years. He was dismissed from his post. Why? Because he spoke out on a number of occasions as a urologist about the medical side effects of the homosexual lifestyle. And basically what he was saying is their hospital was supporting these gay pride events. Um, which if you haven't experienced one, you probably should. Just so you know what this culture is all about. See, television, television programs, the homosexual characters are always the wittiest, the best dressed, the fun, you know, they're, they're everything, right? They got everything together, okay? Go to a gay pride event. Go to a gay pride event and, and, and watch as long as you can stomach the debauchery the, de- the absolute debauchery of these events. Well, his, his hospital in Boston was a sponsor of these events. And he's saying, number one, as a urologist, this is a behavior that we need to be warning people against. Not just because of HIV and AIDS, but because of all kind of cancers, all kind of hepatitis, all kind of... I mean, he, there's a laundry list of things that are associated with this. It's not a lifestyle, it's a death style. The suicide rate, the alcoholism rate, the domestic violence rate, way higher in same-sex relationships than it is in traditional relationships. Much higher rates, even in domestic violence. Okay? So he speaks out against this and says it's wrong for the hospital to be promoting this because as a hospital, we ought to be promoting things that are about people's health. Secondly, in this hospital, there are people... You know, we say we're about, you know, tolerance and this and that and the other. In this hospital, there are people who have moral and religious objections to this lifestyle. So why should we be forced to be a part of supporting this? And so it makes make perfect sense, right? Gone. He's gone. Turned aside from the truth and wandered off into myths. This is just one example. Let me give you a second example. A second example dealing with something more recent. That I, and I think it has to do with this issue of, of counseling. Um, you know, these, these shootings in South Carolina. 
And, and now all of a sudden we've got people just everywhere abandoning um, a flag. Um, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is this is Neoplatonism. This platonic idea that things are evil. Guy killed nine people. He likes that flag. We need to expunge it. Now, at the University of Texas, near, near us, you know, there are some statues that, you know, they're, they're the, there's a committee now that's brought together, and there's some statues of, of you know, folks from the, from the Civil War on the campus, and they're meeting together to decide what to do with those statues. Mark my words. Mark my words. What's going to eventually happen is Stone Mountain in Georgia is going to be challenged. I don't know if it's bigger than or as big as, yeah, it's, it's Stone Mountain in Georgia is huge. But, you know, there you got Stonewall Jackson. Right there. What, what are we going to do with that? What are we going to do with that? Forget the politics of the situation for a moment. And understand what's being said. Somebody shot and killed nine people. The issue is not for us to understand sin and wickedness and depravity, but to remove things because things, flags, statues, these are our problems. This is a worldview that is antithetical to biblical reality. And it says something about what we believe concerning the nature of sin. Now there's great irony in it. Because <laughs> Nadal Hassan, you remember the, the major who, who downed Maui in Killeen? Killed more people, by the way, than the guy did in South Carolina. He was saying Allahu Akbar the whole time. And he's got his Quran, right? Google, um, the, you know, uh, uh, Amazon, all these people. We're, we're not going to sell anything with the Confederate flag on it anymore because of what happened in South Carolina. Uh, I bet you can still find a Quran. And we know there are patterns of people who are holding to that, who are assassinating people en masse. This is one guy who went off in South Carolina and he's got major issues and we're going after things. See, these things may seem unrelated to what we're doing when we're counseling people. But if all of a sudden what God says is sinful and an abomination is no longer to be seen as sinful and an abomination. And if the government, by the way, if because of this ruling and because it's based on this premise, it's based on the premise that ethnicity and sexuality or sexual orientation are essentially the same. If this is true, and, and now the Supreme Court has said that it's true. If this is true, then being anti-same-sex marriage is the absolute equivalent to being racist. And the government can no more approve of the church being anti-same-sex marriage than it could of the church being racist. There will be laws and rulings that come down that have to do with the way we counsel people in this area. And when that time comes, we are going to need to remember this. 
Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, turn away from listening to the truth, and will wander off into myths. How are they wandering off into the myths? The Matthew Vines. God and the gay Christian. Young people are so ecstatic about this book because it gives them an opportunity on the one hand to hold on to their Christianity and on the other hand to hold on to what they've been taught, to how they've been brainwashed as it relates to this particular sin. And if you haven't read God and the Gay Christian, you, you ought to. You ought to because you're, you're going to run into it. You're going to run into this theological argument. And the basic gist of the theological argument is when the Bible talks about homosexuality, it's talking about people who are heterosexual by orientation engaging in same-sex relations as an act of debauchery against their nature. But it's not talking about people who have same-sex orientation because... The Bible really didn't know that. We know that now. But Paul didn't know that. So if people have a same-sex orientation, they don't fall under the category of homosexuality as spoken of in the Bible. So we're talking about something completely different than what the Bible talks about. We're talking about cultures where, you know, heterosexual men who, who will marry, you know, will, will have boys on the side. We're talking about pederasty. We're not talking about s- sexual orientation. That, that's his argument. Now, by the way, he begs the question. In other words, he never proves this. Because no one's ever proven this. Nor would it matter if they did. Nobody's ever proved sexual orientation as immutable and unalterable. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we have 2,000-year-old evidence to the contrary. Right? When Paul says, such were some of you. (laughs) That means some people were homosexuals who weren't anymore. Amen. 2,000-year-old evidence. Ain't nobody never stopped being black. (laughs) Here's where bringing the word to bear is going to be problematic. Here's why. I know you heard about the the recent um, statement from Tony Campolo. Uh, who is now, you know, openly uh, pro same-sex marriage, uh, which is consistent with his theology as it's been. Uh, I, I was surprised that he hadn't made the statement before. When the statement came out, I, I thought, "Wait, wait, Tony hadn't said that before." I thought that was the news to me, you know. Um, so, so here's what we have: we're, we're, there is rising up, and there is now existent. An evangelicalism, in quotes, um, that is openly pro-same-sex marriage, okay, that treats homosexuality unlike any other sin, all right? Can you imagine, for example, a pastor preaching a sermon? Sunday, there are a lot of people who are going to deal with this issue because now the, the, the Supreme Court has ruled. Uh, and even people who, you know, who don't just sort of put their finger in the air and see what the political issue of the day is are probably going to address this. They may not preach a sermon on it, but they're going to say something about the Supreme Court ruling. Um, imagine this, if you will. A pastor is getting ready to say something about adultery, and he stands up and he says, Listen, before I say this, I want you to know. Um, I have friends and some family members who are adulterers. Um, I I love adulterers. God loves adulterers. And and I want you to know that I believe that we ought to embrace and welcome adulterers. I believe it, right? See, we we chuckle. Pedophiles, you know? Listen, I have friends who are pedophiles. I, I want you to... 
I want you to know that before I say what I'm going to say, I just really want to be clear, you know, and, and I think pedophiles, you know, they, they need our love. Um, they need our acceptance. They need our, you know, um, homosexuality is the only sin that we apologize for preaching about. I'm about to say what the Bible says about this, but before I do, I want you to know I'm really sorry that I have to. No other sin is treated that way. And the problem in the culture is the problem of the church. We haven't been nice enough. We haven't been kind enough. We haven't been gentle. Whatever. It's our problem. So here's what's happening. People are going to accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desire. And there are going to be a lot of them out there. There already are. And before you know it, you may even find yourself in the minority on dealing with some of these issues. At that time, folks, it's a Kairos. <laughs> because here's the deal. Regardless of what the culture says about this, God's word is clear and people need our help. If your commitment is to the word of God, then you keep giving people help and pointing them toward biblical wisdom. But if you are not rooted and grounded in scripture, eventually you come to a new normal. And you're counseling on this subject and many others that will follow. Pedophilia is now following, for those of you who know anything about the DSM, right? Pedophilia is now following the exact same track that homosexuality was on a generation ago. Exact same track that it was on. You say that and people go, yeah, but we'll never. Uh-huh. That's what they said 30 years ago about same-sex marriage. Okay. Because the tendency is for us to try to be what people want. It's really hard to stand against the stream when the stream gets going as fast as this one is already going and it's going to speed up. But the only way we can is by having a commitment to the word of God. It must be our foundation. It's, it's, it, that's the difference between us and them. We're not better than they are. And by us and them, I mean what Paul's doing in chapter 3 and chapter 4. He's dividing it into two groups. What's the difference between the two groups? The difference between the two groups is the sacred writings. And lives built upon this gospel that must be preserved and proclaimed in spite of the suffering that will inevitably come as a direct result of doing it. If we've ever needed a commitment to the word of God, we need it now. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have not left us to wander aimlessly in the dark, but that you have provided and preserved for us your word. Grant by your grace that we might hold to it firmly. That this word of the gospel would be preserved and proclaimed regardless of the cost. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2015 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free audios are available at www.ibcd.org.